Sri Gauri Vaishnava Guparampura ki jai Harinam Prabhu ki jai Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai Gaur Priyamanandi Good afternoon everyone, welcome So Where did we leave off last night? Wondering if there were people with elephant's heads somewhere out there <laughs> the uh, Italian or Spanish, maybe Spanish philosopher Spinoza. He was Spanish. He uh, was a pantheist of sorts, and he, long time ago, said that a long time ago, long before Darwin, the Hindus were evolutionists. And uh, there's some some truth to that. Got to tweak evolution as we know it today a little bit to fit with that. But they had an evolutionary concept of of uh, how the world comes uh, to its present form. And they also concluded uh, wisely that uh, there's a nice statement in the Bhagavad Jivo Jivasya Jivanam that's the spider in the web with the with the fly the fly in the web with the spider we talked about last night Jivo Jivasya Jivanam one living being is food for another or in Darwinian terms survival of the fittest the brutest the meanest will uh, rule the roost something like that Mm. Of course, as I've said before, we don't we don't think like that, really. We don't think that the meanest people are the most evolved people. We think that they're the less evolved people. That's our <laughs> common sense uh, kind of response, that the more evolved person is, is the kinder person, the more generous person, the more powerful person than is the most loving person. And uh, I think there's a lot of, a lot of sense to that, common sense, uncommon sense. And so in Hinduism and in Vedanta, kind of the, the brain and, and the head and, and in bhakti, the heart of Eastern mysticism from India, we have these two ideas, both that the world is a, a struggle for existence and one living being is food for another, but the, the means to survive amidst all of that is to rise above the, the conflict, so to speak. And if we are to fight at all, we should fight with ourselves, our sense of self that is a fighter, that is a taker, that is a hunter, and that is being hunted. In other words, our present sense of self, born as it is out of our identification with matter, which in all of its forms is here today and gone tomorrow, finds us feeling in want, needy. And so I have to take to meet my needs. And there's only so much to take and everybody's got the needs and everyone's taking, so there's a, there's a struggle. That's the norm. 
And at the same time, as I said, the ancient teachings we were discussing don't leave it at that. They afford us a solution to the problem, how to, how to rise above it. And that is to turn this kind of killing tendency. We have to kill in order to live in this world. So to turn that tendency on ourselves and kill the taker within us. And that means we have to start to separate ourselves from the identification with that which makes us feel needy, wanted, and without. And this is a very different way of moving in the world, obviously, than what most people do, which is to add on, as we were saying last night to some extent, to attach ourselves to things, to gather things, to accumulate, to acquire. We think that we'll become more. We'll become more burdened, only more troubled, more in need. This is the whole idea of uh, karmic implication. It's like borrowing money from the bank, right? We don't have. We think we have more when we walk out with the check, but <laughs> if we read the fine print, we're really in debt many times over. So when we take, we owe. So to stop taking. And the best way to stop taking is to start giving. This is bhakti's then approach to the problem. So, that identification with matter, it's said in the uh, sacred texts to happen something like this on a macrocosmic scale. Everybody wonders about origins and so forth. And it's a fair amount of speculation based on empirical data and then reasoning about that data or reasoning otherwise or there are speculations based on insight and, and there are different ways of knowing but um, this is one based on insight that I'll offer you from the sacred text and uh, there's some correspondence with the way people think about it sometimes um, in today's world based on interpretation of certain data, you know, like the metaphysical worldview of physicalism or naturalism, these are as wild a speculation as elephant-headed people out there somewhere, or the blue guy, this is what we're kind of talking about, to pick up after last night's conclusion, a very fanciful, actually, interpretation of information, but um, this particular one, this is different, based on insight and kind of going inward and the kind of knowledge that can come from that, rather than the knowledge that can come from reaching out and taking, just like if you, you know, we try to understand the world and we take something from it, we experiment with it, we, we even try to understand the world for a certain purpose. And that might not be the purpose for which the world exists, the natural world. It might be our own conceived purpose based on our attachments, what we think is important and so forth. And we go out and interact with nature and, and so forth on that basis. That's not the, really the maybe the best way to go about it. Uh, you might learn a lot, and we have, through that type of approach, a lot of things, practical things perhaps, for example, through science and so on, so on, technology that comes from science. But the whole kind of investigation and inter human interaction with nature that 
has brought us where we are scientifically and in our present times is based on a certain attitude, also a certain motivation, an idea that I said last night, that nature is for our purposes and our human purposes, whatever they are. Could be different, right, in one country or another, and so some struggle for the resources and to use them for Russian humanity or German humanity or Indian humanity, as may be the case. So the yoga world suggests a different approach to the whole matter. And in real simple terms, it's something like this. I think it was, um, I forget who it was, somebody said, well said, that uh, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. You can think about that for a minute, it's true. If someone is to approach you, let's say I have a lot of money, and I don't, but let's say I did, then if someone approached me and they wanted my money, how would I respond to them? If they approached me and they were nice and then I detected their motive, oh, he just wants my money. I was like, okay, I'll give him some money and get rid of him. I don't really want to tell him too much about myself. He wants my money. Somebody else might want my knowledge to use for their own purpose. And that's okay, that's what he'll give you some knowledge. Yeah, you take it. Someone else might not want anything, just might want to be with me. Someone else might want to love me, in other words, which doesn't involve wanting to take anything from me. Now, what will I give that person? That person I will give myself to. This is the difference between karma, jnana, and bhakti, very simply put. Karma is we want something, jnana means we want everything. If we get frustrated in trying to own everything and accumulate everything, which is obviously not possible, we might want to know everything and then control everything in that way. This is our problem. We want to control our environment because it feels out of control. <laughs> so if we get a handle on everything, we own everything, then we can control it. But we can't own everything. That's futile. So maybe we can know everything. How far you can go with your head compared to where you can go with your hands and your legs. So much further, right? But to know everything, <laughs> that's futile, as futile. The more you try to know, the more you find there is to know. Hmm? But if we could find the, the owner and knower of everything, in other words, if there's something to own, well, somebody must own it. <laughs> if I think that maybe I could own everything, well, maybe everything does belong to someone. Everything, in other words, in, in a sense of everything is a part of something. It's a connection with something that's the center. It's not me. Everything's not revolving around me. But it might be revolving around something. It might have meaning. We do, throughout human society, from the most primitive forms of society to the most civilized and intellectually advanced forms of society, we find a common sense that life has a purpose. Even the scientific community, which sometimes like to say life has no meaning, have found a meaning <laughs> by saying that. They're searching for a meaning. It must have a purpose. And they come to the conclusion it has no purpose. And then they want to broadcast that and teach that. And because we have a real strong sense, a real strong intuition 
there, there's something final to be said about the whole thing. You understand? There's some meaning to it. Even if the meaning is, it has no meaning. You're driven like that. Now, it's all right if you have some intuition that, Swami, if we turn right up here, I think that's where we'll go. Everybody in the car might believe you or might not. But if everybody says, has a similar intuition or the same intuition, basically, we tend to give that a little more credence. This strong sense in human society that arises that life has a purpose, has a mean, has meaning, has something more than what meets the eyes. Yeah, we can philosophize that away, but in doing so, we're really just, again, trying to find meaning. And we're seeing life has a meaning, it has a purpose. There's some order to it, and it's that it has no order. <laughs> it's random. So this is not so easy to dismiss. And therefore, no matter what amount of philosophy is brought to the fore, that'll never go away. It doesn't even go away in those who are trying to philosophize it away. So there may, maybe there is a center. Maybe things do belong somewhere. They have a place in relation to the center. In that, in that sense, I mean things are owned by someone, let's say. And if someone owns everything, they must know everything. Right? So rather than, and I think we touched on this last night, trying to know everything or trying to own everything and thereby control everything and feel at ease, there's another approach. This is bhakti, and that is to love the one who owns and knows everything. See ourself as part and in, rela in relation to the whole, to the center. And if you love that center, then it will tell you all its secrets. This is the idea. Similarly with nature, with the world, we can exploit it and twist it and tweak it for our purposes and we can get a lot of knowledge from it. And it may sound kind of flaky just to say, well, if you loved it, it would tell you all its secrets. And someone would say, well, you know, come to me when you have cancer, you know, then, and, and well, what's, will it tell you that secret? But those are all smaller secrets, really. No matter how wonderful they may seem, the miracles of modern medicine and so forth, that did away with so much superstition and whatever, space travel or so many technological achievements that we all live in and take advantage of, and, and myself included and so forth. I recognize it as, as, as something that has been revealed through a particular approach to nature, but I don't see it as the biggest secrets. Again, it's how to get things, it's how to maintain and sustain for a little longer something that's not sustainable. My sense of self that's based on my material attachments. I can make that a little better. If I have a heavy burden and I'm carrying it on my shoulder, and so after a while I move it to this shoulder, well, that's kind of better. <laughs> I can move it to my head for a while and then back to the shoulder. After a while I have to put it down or go down with it and so forth. So we can, and I'm not against improving the standards of, of, of living to a point, but the real approach to improve the standard of living is to learn how to live forever. Learn how to um, come in touch with that part of ourself, with our very self, that endures. After all, we, we're looking for that. We're looking for perfect knowledge, and what is why? Because we want to be perfectly happy. So, how to get that secret? 
That's another thing. And in the face of, of getting that secret, collecting that, all the other accomplishments will seem very insignificant in comparison. And I don't mean to say they don't have any value. They do. But comparatively, they don't. So what this is about, yoga, in many respects, is really going in a very different direction than we've kind of been going in our lives, really changing our our angle of vision. It's, it's a little, we're habituated in a particular way to think, to look at the world and from a, a kind of a self-centered perspective and based on a, a sense of self that is here today and gone tomorrow and act as if it's not and, and, and so forth. This is, it's a little difficult. It's not an easy thing, yoga, to be accomplished in that. It's very much worth pursuing. You get some sense about this and, and you, know, you can't, just can't turn away from that. You have to go for that. Even when you learn, it may take many lifetimes. You know, it said, not in one lifetime will, become, will you become enlightened. Not in one lifetime. But I also say, in one lifetime you will. You understand? <laughs> and when you start thinking, in this one I will. Maybe a couple of those. Yeah. With that kind of determination, you understand? <laughs> so to make this the goal, be our ideal, to hear about this from all angles so that you're cornered, so to speak, and you just cannot honestly move in any other way but for your real self-interest. We should know that some people care about us more than we do. They know better what we are than we do. And it gives them pain to see us conduct ourselves in a way that's not in our self-interest. And we do that all the time. I mean, have you ever thought of doing something and then reasoned with your intellect that it wouldn't be good for you, but done it anyway? Have you ever not done that? Yeah. That would be more the rarity. This is our predicament. It's pathetic, actually. It's an embarrassment to ourself, to what we are to succumb really to the demands of the mind, the senses, and to wed the intellect to the demands of the mind and senses so we use it just to facilitate a bestial type of existence of taking and collecting and, and becoming big and mean, <laughs> really, a bigger taker. Intelligence is, is a subtle thing. It should be, it's very kind of close to the self. It's different categorically different, ontologically different, but, but it's close. And then what I mean to say by that is, in the wisdom tradition of, of yoga, the idea is that the world, the macrocosm of the world, it comes about something like this. This is through their insight, what they learned, by going in the yogic way of knowing, and by trying to become lovers rather than takers, they had some secrets revealed to them. And they talked briefly about the nature of the world and how it manifests and so forth. Because after all, they weren't that much concerned about all the specific intricate details of what might go on inside of every single atom or something like that. But they had a view that it's basically like this and it's not what it appears to be to the naked eye and it should be transcended. It's a problem. It's a struggle for existence. And we should come out from underneath it, so to speak. We should rise above it. That means really, under, really understanding it. 
I might have transcended material existence and know nothing about physics or science or biology or even arithmetic, right? It's quite possible. But whether there be any loss, as much as we really understand what we're talking about, what yoga is about, then you have to say no. And I'm not against, you know, I did learn arithmetic. That's about it. <laughs> I don't have any real education, but, you know, you learn as you go, as you have to, something like that. So, by approaching the world, nature, in a different way, rather than as takers, but as lovers, they got insight, and they talked about the way the world evolves, something like this. They said, there's prakriti, there's nature, and it's, it's a stuff, and it has three modes of operating in. Sattva, rajas, tamas. It means a mode of clarity and purity, a mode of energizing and, and doing and collecting, and then a, a mode of like inertia, mode of not doing anything, kind of going backwards, something like that. And we can see these, what they're talking about in our own psyche, which is a subtle dimension of our material reality, and in our physical body, which is a more gross dimension of our material reality. And different people's psyche and physiology are constituted differently of these influences. It manifests in, in what you want to wear, in what you want to eat, what kind of places you like to, to gather, what kind of music you listen to, what kind of people, and so forth. And of course, the yoga seeks to bring us to a sattvic mode of, of living, which brings clarity, which helps us distinguish between, to discriminate in a very fine way between matter and consciousness, and separate the self out from which it's not, and, and pursue it, the experiencer from the experience, and so forth. So, in the beginning, if you will, it goes something like this. These uh, modes of nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas, they're in a state of equilibrium, resting. And then, poetically, it's described the glance of Vishnu. Vishnu glances, that's called shambhu, shiva. It means, she means auspicious also, it means consciousness. She is projected onto the, this uh, primordial matter in a state of equilibrium. And it's agitated, and that's like, you know, like it's, there's an explosion, the Big Bang kind of idea. And the whole thing is set in motion, the world. And this consciousness that we are constituted of, we are agitating that matter that is unconscious, inanimate, we are the life, but we've been projected into it and we have started it moving, we've animated it, so to speak. And upon animating it, well, it takes a shape, so that shape is kind of the reflection of, ours, of ourselves. In other words, like looking in the mirror, all of a sudden this matter takes a shape and we notice it and we start to identify with it. So from the agitation of the primordial, it's in a primordial state, prakriti, then it becomes agitated, it's called mahat. Mahat means, means buddhi also, it means like uh, knowing. And so the, the matter takes on a, an appearance of knowing and, and being and, and being alive and we 
identify with is the next phase. That identification is called ahankar. Ahankar means ego, means identity. I've, we've identified with that. And then that identification with the stuff that, it's like you built something and you're like, wow, you know, you've identified with it. You've gone there. You've entered into it. You might lose sight of your, yourself even. Let's say you, you know, you create a movie and then you really lose yourself in the part, something like that. And people have died in movies, you know, actually had heart attacks while portraying somebody that had a heart attack or something like that. It's possible to be, to really get uh, absorbed. So this is the condition. We get absorbed in matter and we identify with it and then our identification, this hunkar, this ego, interacts with sattva, rajas and tamas in different proportions. In, in that interaction with, with sattva, then manas, mind is formed. And in the interaction with rajas, then the senses are born or evolve. Senses for perceiving and for acting. Atmendriya, kamendriya means like, uh, like sense of sight, by which you perceive, taste, smell, touch, hearing, and then organs of action by which we accomplish things, legs, hands, procreative organ, and so on and so forth, speech. And so these manifest with the hunkar ego in relation to rajas. And then the, the more gross elements that are the objects of sight, like color, the objects of taste, like water, the object of smell, like earth from which the flowers come and, and so forth. And so solidity, earth, liquidity, water, plasma, heat, fire, it's called earth, water, fire, air, which is also like movement, and time, space, kind of quantum, akash, ether. All these, one comes like out of the other and and it's an evolution, the self, the consciousness that's moving that, identifying with the matter. Matter starts to form around it in a particular way, and as it gets senses, then sense objects have to manifest, and so, and so the world. And we, the whole, so the whole world of matter descends down like this, from the primordial state of matter to the development of the, of the elements, like earth, water, fire. And then the self goes kind of down to the bottom and then starts going up through different forms of life in accordance with karma. We arrive at the human form of life. We get to talk about all these things, to think about all these things. We also learn from this that there's the macrocosm and then there's the microcosm of our particular body. So in that we have sense objects that we contact. We have senses through which we contact them. We have a mind, we have intelligence, and then there's us. And that's different than all those things. That's what animates those things. That's what gets lost in the identification that causes all that to form around us. It's a huge tangle. I mean, <laughs> you can imagine, it's a huge tangle. And then, bad enough that it happens in one sense, and then, then we start to act within it. It's like quicksand. The more you move, the more you go down. That's like the idea of karma. The more we move then in that direction, 
the more we tend to lose sight of ourself, the more we try to reach out, acquire, and solve the, the problem. The problem is misidentification. And so the more that we move within the context of misidentification, well, we're not going to grow in terms of self-identification until we, unless we like bottom out and think there's got to be something more. There's negative impetus that makes us look beyond somewhere else, another direction. We take a radical approach. Maybe there are people with elephants' heads. Who knows? I've got to do something. Hmm? <laughs> and it's, of course, there's some good reason to all this approach. And, uh, and there are many possibilities. Why not? Look at the possibilities that lie in the physical realm. Let's say, for example, if I ask anyone here to, can you take everything physically in this room, out of the room, once, in one, one time, pick up this couch, this flower vase, all these pictures, and carry it all out at once. Then you'll say, no, it's not possible. So then if I say, oh, can, can anyone take it out with their mind? I think, well, that might be possible. <laughs> Give me a little time. I'll start thinking about everything. All I have to do is get outside and go to the couch, the picture, that picture, the lamp, the computer, all those people, all their names. It's not so easy, but you could do it means that mind is more spacious. There's more possibilities that lie in mind in the psychic dimension of ourself than in the physical dimension of self. There's a hierarchy here. Mind is operating differently than the physical plane. We, in yoga, make a distinction between mind and brain. Much as people might like to think sometimes that there's no distinction, they're very, very far from ever demonstrating that. That's like the last frontier of science and, and it's like a total frontier. It's like totally primitive. It will remain as such. Maybe they'll get so far as to realize this just isn't working. Turn mind into brain. What to speak of then in the yogic worldview, consciousness into mind and that into brain. Now, a fellow asked me, a smart guy, father of one of my students, I was talking about consciousness and matter, and he said, well, why do you have to think that consciousness is different from matter? I said, well, it sure acts differently. <laughs> you might think about that. Consciousness experiences, matter is experienced. They sure seem different. Why would you think they're the same? Well, because we were invested, this is the answer. We were invested in going a particular way that it makes things work, it seems, on a human level. We've got so many accomplishments as a result of moving in the direction that possibly that you know doing away with superstition and religion elephant-headed people and all that stuff you know people are healthier there's no more you know bubonic plague like there was in Europe we've got medicine we, we, we're invested in this for good reason Swami look at what we've accomplished and I would say look at what you've lost also why couldn't you do you know a little bit of both <laughs> why one at the cost of, of, of the other I mean, think of it. If mind is different, and in, in, as we say in the yoga terminology, a subtle form of matter that works under different laws, what will be the loss? Does that mean that we have to close all the hospitals and all the accomplishments that we've gotten by my, science are, are no longer of any use? No. So it's, it's op to be open-minded and reasonable. We consider this as a, a possibility. Here's an age-old system. seems to be around still. Popular, too yoga, and it's well thought out, and there are people who have practiced it and have had 
uh, success in it in terms of what it what it speaks about. And yeah, maybe they see things that don't you know seem like weird to you, but <laughs> you might seem weird to them. I mean, what's weird? <laughs> One head, you know. Why is that normal? <laughs> I once saw a Twilight Zone. You know, remember that? It was a long time ago. And they had uh, the whole show. Nobody's face showed, but there was an operation going on. Maybe you saw that one. And they were, oh, how terrible. This person's face had been, a baby, I think, had been born and had a deformed f- face. And they were all talking about it. Oh, it's really terrible. How are we going to tell the mother? How are we going to tell the father? Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And the, the whole time you couldn't see any of the doctor's faces, of course. And then they, in the end, you saw the baby's face and it was just like ours. And then their, their faces all had one eye, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's weird? Yeah. And what's possible? Let's talk about mind, for example, as a stuff, not just as, you know, sometimes you think, well, it's only in your mind. Only? (laughs) Only in your mind. What's on your mind would determine everything that you do. Our whole physical activity is, is dependent upon what we think. Only in your mind. And the fact that there are other possibilities in the mind than there are in the physical world shouldn't make it any less... Real. Have you ever seen gold? Yeah. Have you ever seen a mountain? You ever see a golden mountain? Mountain made out of gold? No. But you could see one in your mind, right? So many things you could see there. So many things you could experience there. So much more accommodating and spacious is mind and the psyche than the physical plane. So many possibilities there. And we even entertain them readily. And so in the yoga world, there's a stuff called mind. There's a world of mind, if you will, a whole psychic realm. And there, sometimes people look a little different. Yogis have had this such experience of kind of possibilities that if we were just attached to the, the physical kind of conception of life might seem odd to us. But that is what I say, if we just think about it a little bit, it's not so far-fetched. There's a place called mind. <laughs> so there's all kinds of things that go on there. And there's a way to enter there and experience there and so on and so forth. But that's, of course, just then the psychic dimension of our material condition. And it means to say that, like in, in Hinduism, we posit these different gods and goddesses. In one sense, it's a poetic way of speaking about natural forces, but it's also a subtle way of speaking about the subtle influences behind the gross forces that govern our our lives, just like you know, to see, we're dependent upon light, right? Light comes from the sun. So, to acknowledge the sun, you know, what do you say, Surya Namaskar, right? Is to say that my eyes, for example, my sense of sight, it's not mine entirely. In other words, it's not just independent. I think I can look wherever I want. But I can't look at all without the sun, without light, right? So my sense of sight, similarly my sense of hearing, we're made up of senses, materially in one sense. All these things are dependent upon something in nature in order for them to function properly. So when we identify that, we start to see 
an interdependence that informs our independence. We want independence. We don't want any rules. We want independence, but we should not have independence at the cost of understanding the reality of our interdependence. That will be a great loss. You will not be free at all. That will be bondage in the name of independence. There can be independence, but only in the context of understanding the interdependent nature of the reality that we exist in. We're dependent upon some. And if you're dependent upon someone, then you show some gratitude. Yoga is a way of living with gratitude. And showing gratitude is kind of a rudimentary way of showing love, isn't it? At least show some gratitude. At least you could say thanks. And if love is a way of getting reality to tell its secrets, then this is a, a beginning. Hmm? Yoga is this yogic orientation towards life that is that's worshipful and full of regard and acknowledging my interdependence and so forth and so on. This has the capacity, this kind of lifestyle, to reveal things, to make possibilities known to us that otherwise we couldn't have fathomed. It's mystical, but it's very practical too. I mean, you know, like you, like here, um, Chittahari uh, lives here in the house, right? So we've got lights. Just turn on the switch. You've got water. Just turn on the faucet. You've got heat. Just press a button, right? You go to the mailbox. You've got a bill. <laughs> There's somebody on the other end. If you don't acknowledge the light man, I don't know how many heads he has, or the, or the, 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 the water man, or the heat woman, then all, they're all going to go out. You're going to press the button and nothing's going to happen. So there's somebody on the other end. So we're talking about in a macrocosmic way. It's not so fanciful to think that if there is consciousness that makes me matter, makes the matter in me matter. In other words, as I said before, if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? Consciousness knows. Consciousness cares. Without that, matter doesn't matter. So we matter. The experiencer is primary. You know, and the experience is secondary. So if there's consciousness in our own experience that's behind our material movements, why not consciousness behind the whole of matter, some intelligence, and then to personify it, to give it a personality. Is that so far-fetched? We have a personality. We, we have uh, some individuality and uh, a sense of discrimination and so forth. So this is what the rishis, mystics, yogis, they did. They... It's just like, you know, you find the, find the same thing in, uh, what did he say, St. Francis, Brother B, you know, Sister Tree, and so forth. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, he was personifying, and, and he was seeing nature, for example, in a, what might seem like a cartoon way or something like that. But, you know, cartoons can be pretty cool. Uh, you can do a lot of things there. It's animation is what it's called. You understand? It's animation. So spiritual life is about animation. It's about bringing everything to life. It's about seeing the connection that all things have with their source and relating to them accordingly and therefore letting them be what they are instead of making them part of what I need based on what I think I am, which is not what I am. How much do you see a thing for what it is then? 
How much do you give a thing an opportunity to be all it can be? Therefore, the world looks dead and we get bored. And that's the worst sin. Boredom. It's the only sin. We're not paying attention. We've got a human life. We're not paying attention to the opportunity that it affords us. Life's not exciting. It's not exciting. You're a human being, for God's sake. That's not exciting. You were a fish. You were a bird. You were a worm. Not a bad thing, but human life gives you so much more freedom. Freedom to think. Freedom to reason. We should reason. We should use our head to soften our heart. Human life is distinguished from other forms of life not simply because we can reason. Or should we say, if we can reason, we should reason well. We should reason how to love, how to do things voluntarily. We can hone that. There's some voluntary action in, in less complex forms of life also. But in human life, we can hone that. We can really be lovers. That's evolution. That's to be the most evolved person. That's to conquer over the struggle for existence. That's to be the fittest. And that's to open so many possibilities. It's turned the whole world alive. That's what we describe. Like we, we talk now, we talk about Krishna, we talk about Leela, and everything's alive there. What does it mean? The trees are alive. They move. And the stones, Nama Chintamani, Chintamani, Prakara Satmasu, Kalpa Brikshalakshabriteshu, Surabir Abhipalayantam. Chintamani, Prakara Satmasu, Kalpa Riksha Lakshabriteshu, Surabir Abhipalayantam. This is nice, nice poetry, but it, it's very profound also. This is a description of Krishna Leela, the Dham. Dham means light, and it means abode, like the place. It's a self-illumined place. Consciousness is the illuminating factor. Everything conscious there, everything alive. What's making something dead, really? In one sense, it's an angle of vision that we have. The mind is matter, subtle, but matter. It's trying to make everything dead. We, we hear about Avatara, for example, Krishna. It's supposed to be a historical event. Krishna appeared on earth. This is how Christianity, like marketed itself all over Europe. It's history, they would say. No, it's no longer um, speculation, superstition. It's a historical event. God sent his son. He proved that he was a son because he died and he came back. And there were, you know, all kinds of soothsayers and, you know, witches and whatnot, medicine men all over Europe, pagan religions and so forth. And uh, this is the one miracle that closed down all other miracle shops. And it was a historical event. God sent his son. But they made market it all over the world, but they couldn't get anywhere in India. <laughs> For some reason. Because <laughs> people come back from the dead all the time. There. <laughs> and they said, God came here lots of times. <laughs> He's been here so many times. There's nothing new to us. This is a unique place. India. It's history, it's theological history. It's it's the Mark Twain, what did he say? It's right written over here. He said In religion, only India is a millionaire. It's rich, rich with possibilities. And even in science, as I said last night, I think that in looking to try to understand 
consciousness, if anywhere outside of itself, they go to India, into the cave, what they've written about that, the nature of consciousness, their experience of the self. So Chintamani, Prakarasadma, why not a world of consciousness? It's talked about like this, Chintamani. Chintamani means the philosopher's stone, touchstone. He said if you touch that stone to lead, it will turn lead into gold. Something like that. So it's a Chintamani, Prakarasadmasu. The land is made of Chintamani. Kalpa Briksha Lakshavriteshu. The trees are all Kalpa Riksha. Kalpa Riksha means desire trees. You can get from the tree whatever you want, not just the apple, not just an apple and a peach and a pear, but anything. The trees are wish fulfilling trees. The land is the touchstone. Chintamani prakalasu, sadmasu, kalpa rikshalakshabiteshu, suravir, apipalayantam. And there, the sport is herding cows, he said. It's describing Krishna, he's herding cows. Suravir, avi, palayantam, kataganam, natyam, gamanam, apibamsi priyasaki. He says, the, the walking is dancing, the talking is song. So, oh, sounds nice, but it's poetic, but it's profound too. It, it, it means many things, but one of the things it means is this. If you, you, you say, well, how can I believe in such a place? We should think, well, it might be nice if I could go there and the stones were all touchstones, the trees, you could get anything you want from them. Wow. <laughs> Maybe I want to go there. But if you think a little further, what it's saying is there are people there. And they don't ask the tree for anything. They don't ask the stone for anything. They don't want anything. I don't want anything. I don't want anything. The more you don't want anything, the more everything comes and offers itself to you. They don't want everything because they're full from giving. Giving is the, is the getting. And one of our teachers said, if the walking there is dancing and the talking is song, what must be the song? And what must be the dance? Of that place. And it's saying everything alive, everything conscious. It means, like I'm saying to you, if you stop taking the life out of yourself and out of other things altogether by trying to exploit them for a misconceived sense of what you are and purpose uh, that you have and so forth, then it will come alive. The world will come alive. It will be animated and so many possibilities there. What is a cow herding? What is the idea? You know, you see Krishna depicted with so many cows. What are cows, anyway? We don't know, practically, the way we treat them. But cows, they're just givers, really. How much does grass cost? Just look outside. It just grows. The rain comes, and it grows. And you think, well, what's in, it? What's in, what's in grass? What cows make out of grass? It's incredible. So it's a, such a a useless commodity, and you know, we use it to decorate the ground, or, you know, kind of soften the ground to walk on or something. We're out there mowing it. The cows are thinking, that's food. <laughs> <laughs> I could turn that into milk for you. I got more than I can use. Cows have more milk than the, than the calf can use. There's a movie we played recently at uh, our festivals. A festival comes this time of year commemorating some Leela of Krishna in relation to the cows and so forth. And um, in the movie, it was documenting the history of humans' interaction with cows 
and it made a statement, which was a definitive statement. It wasn't just a kind of a funny statement, although it is kind of funny. It was a real statement. We don't know, really, whether humans domesticated cows or the cows domesticated the humans. The cows tamed the humans from hunting and gathering by just interacting with them and, you know, you could kill them and have food for the winter or, geez, you know, you could mate them and have milk and, you know, and so on. And and, and then you could use the bull to, to till the soil and he's willing. So agriculture, this is the beginning of civilization. Man meets cow, civilization begins. So who, <laughs> who civilized who? And then she just eats grass, just grows practically. Then from the grass comes milk and from milk... So many things you can make. Cheese and thousands of kinds of cheese and butter and yogurt and that's good. It's not, I mean, it's not the stuff you buy in the store. That's a different thing for the most part. Right from the cow, you know, unpasteurized, unhomogenized, and the cow's fed on grass rather than all stuffed with corn and injected with, you know, all kinds of hormones and, uh, you know, that's a different thing there that they're selling in the name of milk. They're selling money is what they're selling. They're not food in this country, but money. So, <laughs> so cows, so you'll see Krishna with cows means something like this. His name is Gopal. Gopal means who takes care of cows. So cows are givers. So all they're doing is giving. I mean, comparatively. You eat, if you figure, eat grass, they're going to give milk. What's the comparison for us? Milk to grass. They're giving the milk. Grass is like nothing. Really, milk is actually expensive if you take care of cows properly. And this is how it used to be. Therefore, when you hear stories of Krishna Leela and so forth, and these, the community has so much milk that on Krishna's birthday they're bathing him in milk and bathing him in yogurt and bathing him in butter. And you think, that sounds cute. You know? But what it also says is these people are like wealthy, wealthy in real you know, natural resources. Real milk in American society, if we were to have milk by way of taking care of the cow would be would be like a luxury item. So they're they're depicted in the in, in the Leela rolling in milk. It's said that the place of Krishna is surrounded by an ocean of milk. And milk means what also? Milk means you you see, you treat a cow nicely or a mother, every mother knows milk is about affection. That's what it's about. Hmm? You have affection for your child and you have milk to give. You treat a cow nicely, she hears her calf, and milk will start coming even before you milk her. Milk is affection. It means there's a land of affection. You're thinking, well, you know, look, here, Swami's talking about the material world, it's time and space and their forms, and they're here today and gone tomorrow. What we are is consciousness. Well, that's big and spacious. Okay, I'm beyond space and time. Now he's talking about forms again and stuff. It's getting small again. What's going on? Here's what's going on. <laughs> you've got the worlds of forms and names and so forth constituted of matter the here today and gone tomorrow that's, that, that's time and space we have to get beyond that so we go within and we experience ourselves and we find unity we're all units of consciousness and we're not any less or more than one another we're not one an Indian one an American one a man one a woman we're not one more intelligent one less intelligent we're all units of consciousness, just a unit of satchit and a unit of, of giving capacity. That's what we are. But that's in our rudimentary stage of real being, of real self. That's in our fundamental stage, our seed life. So we just come out from matter. 
from this form, right, and separated ourselves from that. Here we are, unit of consciousness. Now we're turning to the world of consciousness. We get to grow in that direction, to all the possibilities of that realm, and to give shape to that. I mean, after all, what is art, for example? It's giving shape to something, to facilitating a feeling, a, without the brush, without the canvas, right? What is art? Without form, and how will you express it? We say that even in the material world. If I don't have a body, then what will I do? What will I do, Swami? <laughs> well, <laughs> get another one. A body made out of consciousness. Go in that direction. So, we move from the world of temporary forms and names. We come to understand ourselves as a unit of consciousness. And we express ourselves in relation to the world of consciousness. When we try to find, and find our way there, we get a shape to participate. This is the idea. And those forms are beyond time and space. They're not in time and space. I know it's hard to get, you know, put that into space here, yeah, between your ears, but there's more than what fits in our head to reality. And the wisdom then of going there begins with this letting go of the extra baggage that we're carrying around, the wants, the things, the idea of acquiring that I, you know, become more full. That makes sense. So as I said, let's not, you start to do that. Let go of those things. Begin to conduct yourself in a more of a worshipful approach to life and so on. Then you can start to understand things about the nature of consciousness that we could talk about now that due to your lack of acquaintance with the nature of consciousness and being are a little harder to digest and, and to place, so to speak. So Krishna, the blue guy, is the idea. He's taking care of cows. Cows are only giving. And again, they take a little grass and then they give so much. So they're only giving. So the idea is that to be associated with Krishna, with the center, you have to become a giver. You have to become a giver. And then you think, well, if I only give, then, you know, who's going to take care of me? <laughs> That's what Gopal means. He takes care of those who only give. He's surrounded by cows. means his people are those who are only givers. The more you become a giver means the more you become a lover. The more you can become in touch with what love personified. That's what Krishna is. Love personified. And he's a taker. What? <laughs> We're supposed to be givers and our God is a taker. What kind of example is he setting? The idea is this, that in order to give there has to be a taker on the other end. Right? And in order to be the taker on the other end, the nature of the taker is the more he takes, the more it's distributed. Just like the stomach is the taker in the body. The roots are the taker in the tree. The more you give water to the roots, what happens? The more all the flowers blossom and the fruits come out and the whole tree is happy. Now go try and pour water on each flower. I want to be nice to each flower. I heard the flowers need water. Pour water on each flower. Neglect the root. Then what will happen? All the flowers will droop and frown at you. What are you doing? <laughs> they talk to you like that. No. Water the root. So this idea, Krishna the root, Krishna the stomach of the body, of the world in our life, and that's the center. So he's depicted and understood and experienced by mystics. Like the enjoyer. He's only playing. He's only enjoying. And again, one who only plays, he has all power, has nothing to do. There was a German fellow 
in the 1920s who came to India looking for God. And he looked at all the different manifestations of God, you know, and then he came upon Krishna and he said, this must be the Supreme One because he's got nothing to do. <laughs> hmm? He ended up joining a particular uh, lineage back in those days. And that's not, you know, a sectarian idea. Again, in Hinduism, in the yogic world, all these different gods and goddesses, they, they mean something. They represent something. They're, they're the personification of some aspect of, an, of natural laws or the governing of the mind, the moon is associated with, for example, sun with vision and so forth. And so that's a lesser realm. That's this world, the psychic and physical dimension. Then there's the realm above that. There's the physical realm. There's the psychic realm. There's, there's an intellectual realm. It's like mind is a stuff. Intellect is a stuff. There you've got the four-headed Brahma. means he's like, thinks a lot. You know, he's a well-thought-out guy. Brahma, he's a creator type of personification in a relative sense. And, so, and then above that, we go to the Paravyom. So where are we going? This is my point. We're going from this small world right, of names and forms to the big world of consciousness. We're all consciousness. It's spacious again. And Swami's talking about cows and people, and it's getting small, right? What's happening? Here's what's happening again. We move from the small world of our pettiness and taking and so forth. It gets us in a predicament where we, we take things and we, we, we can't keep them. Nothing's ours and we think they are. It's, just, it's really small-minded and it's uncomfortable on account of that. We move away from taking. Not taking is the beginning of loving, right? Detachment is about getting closer to people and things. It's stepping back from interacting with them in terms of how they can work for me and letting them be what they are, and, I see, and then I can better love them. You understand? So we're getting bigger, there's getting more space, we come to consciousness, it's big. Now consciousness is big and spacious and so forth, right? The world of names and forms, it's, it's, it's problematic. It's like somebody's chasing us down the street all the time. Our ears are chasing us, our nose is chasing us, our tongue is making demands upon us, the mind is demanding. Oh, it's relentless oppressive, you know, condition of demands of the mind and senses. They're never satisfied. They're always waving some appetizer in front of me. Just get this, and then everything will be in place. Just a little bit of effort over here. <laughs> then it never ends. You just get indigestion. Appetizer after appetizer. So, go inside a room, lock the door. <sighs> shanti, shanti. It's open. It's a big space. There's nobody else there. <sighs> I'm just alone. It's peaceful. That's some relief. But how long are you going to sit there? <laughs> well, you got to do something. You want to go out, that, go out the back door. Maybe there's something going on that side. That's the idea. And what is space anyway? Room. You're thinking form is making things smaller and more confined. It's getting less spiritual. We're talking about Krishna's form. No, think of it like this. What is really makes something accommodating? Is it space? Let's say you had a big house all to yourself. That'd be pretty accommodating, kind of. Let's say you had a, you lived in a, a hollow of a tree, a redwood. <laughs> Make it a big one, but it's pretty small, right? But let's say that you live with someone that you love there. How big would it be then? Affection, that makes for accommodation. Not physical space, affection. Love is what is accommodating. So when we talk about this 
as a kind of a spiritual progression from material existence to Brahman, undifferentiated consciousness, ah, some space. But when we move in bhakti then, within consciousness, to a realm of lila, what we're moving towards is affection. It looks like it's getting smaller, but what's happening is there's specificity, which is necessary for love. The more you know about me, the more you can love me, if I'm lovable at all. But the more you know about someone, the more you can love them. The more information you have, the more detail. The less detail there is, the more undifferentiated it is, the less capacity there is to love. You may love in, a, in an awful, awesome, awful, awful? Uh, in a reverential way, full of awe. That like, wow, this is spacious. Brahman is big. It's everything. But in terms of developing affection and so forth, then specificity is required. That's why in Bhagavad Gita, I'll give you an example. What happened in the 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita? The 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna shows that the whole universe is inside of him. And Arjuna says, oh my God. I liked you as my friend a little bit better. And you can just tell me that you're God and be my friend. That's cool. But like when you show it, it's like, whoa, I've got to step back. Maybe there was some transgression. I, I called you affectionately by different names and so forth. You're God, for God's sake. There's a whole, the whole world inside of you. <laughs> I can't get close to you anymore. He said, I want to see you in your other form, in your two-handed form, the most rare form. That I can love you in that form. Specificity, then, is not limiting, you see. It's, in, it's increasing the capacity for loving, and that's making space. This Krishna Leela looks very small. You know, that it, you, have, you have this Brahman, it's undifferentiated space. Then you have what's called Paravyam Vaikuntha, the, re, the realm of Narayan, God. Everyone worshipping in awe and reverence. It's a, it's a big place. But then you go to Vrindavan, Krishna's Leela. It's a little place in the village. They're cowherd people. They have no education, anything. Simple people, it's small, it's, it's depicted as such. Krishna has two, I mean, Orion has four arms and he's got, you know, sitting on a big throne with a big crown and Krishna's just got a peacock feather. That is his crown. Natural minerals from the ground, he's painting himself with different colors like a child will. It's a very intimate setting, very small. But if you study the Leela, you find the affection there is much greater. This form is affording greater opportunity for interaction with the Absolute and intimacy. People are loving him like in a romantic way. Think of that's pretty revolutionary. You want to love God, you think, okay, you know, Om, and you know, you've got this real somber chorus, what do they call it? And a choir, you know, and the harp, and it's like, like Om, it's like, kind of like that. <laughs> it's kind of respectful and all. But we know that love has other forms than that. Like in this world, the highest love, you could say, would be the love between the student and the teacher. There's no taking there. You know, it's done properly. Teacher's only giving. No exploiting. If the teacher exploits the student, that's headlines. And if it's a spiritual teacher, this is the highest love. And then we go to friendly love. We go down a little bit. Friendly love. Friends, they love it. They just say, I'll tell you something because you need to know it, Okay. You're acting like a jerk. 
you know, that's what your friend says. Okay, you know, he loves me. I appreciate that. So that's good. Then we go to parental love, right? Love for the children. And then, you know, we don't tell them always the truth or, you know, it's, you know we're more attached. It's more intense, but it can be a little compromised. And then we go to romantic love. And, and it's, it's kind of further down the ladder, in one sense, just the way I'm talking about it. And, you know, love, romantic love is infatuation largely, so you know, what's in that? You know, you're infatuated and you go from one to the other. and It's more intense, I understand that, but I'm just talking about it in a particular way. Now, we take that spectrum and when we, then we turn it from the material side, we flip it over and put it on the spiritual side. And it goes up like this in a ladder of intensity because the relationship, the loving relationship is centered on the center. It's centered on Krishna. So all the, from a relationship of like awe and reverence that you might have for the teacher, like, you know, you're all sitting there, I'm sitting up here. That's just a, you know, pretend thing. I'm the teacher, you're the, we're all students, but forever. I also sit down there and I look up too. But there's some, he's got the robe, you know, there's some reverence kind of thing. So then we, there's less intensity, less intimacy in a sense. So we go up the ladder in spiritual life. So there's relationships with Krishna, for example, as friend, as parent of Krishna, as the romantic lover of Krishna. Then it becomes higher and higher, more and more intense. The form of Krishna for this type of loving intimacy beyond love and awe and reverence, godly love, this is why then mystics say this is the fullest depiction of the absolute Krishna because in this depiction of the absolute, in this appearance of the absolute, there's all facility for loving. The full expression of love, reciprocal dealings, the height of reciprocation in intimacy is possible. And so one of the reasons it's possible is because in that situation, the infinite takes on a finite-like appearance in order that the finite can get close. Because, as I've said many times, if you were sitting next to the infinite and you know it, you'd like step back. Oh, my God, that's the infinite right there? <laughs> Whoa, it's like, my God. So, in order for there to be intimacy, that overt expression of majesty and godliness has to be suppressed. And what causes that? This is an interesting thing. What causes that? You say, well, what's, what's the cause of God, for example? God's the cause of everything. What's the cause of God? Krishna caused everything. What's the cause of Krishna? You say, well, you can't ask that question. Actually, you could. And here's the cause. Your love for Krishna is the cause of Krishna. You want that intimacy with reality. Such You want to love the truth just like you love the lover with the same intensity of infatuation. Nothing can get in the way of it. If anything does, it just facilitates it that much more. You try to stop your daughter from going out with that boy, you know, because yeah. you don't think he's... <laughs> That'll just give her more impetus to go. That kind of love. I want that kind of love for truth. We have this kind of ideal. Then truth has to respond accordingly because truth is, he is love. He's purchased by love. If you speak on his terms, you want that kind of... He has to show a face accordingly. So this devotion, Krishna comes from devotion. Where does devotion come from? That comes from Krishna. <laughs> Where does God come from? Krishna is more than God. Idea. 
He comes from his devotees. Where do his devotees come? And they come from him. This is achinta veda veda. So, any question? Yeah. The question uh, is how, I was going to use the word important, but actually as I was thinking about it, I, the word came to essential, and it's, I'm choosing that word deliberately. How essential is association to be able to advance, to be able to evolve, to be able to achieve the goal? And another part of this is that are there different kinds of association, and how important are those different kinds of association? How essential is that different kinds of association? So you're talking about sadhu sangha, association with sadhus. How essential is association with sadhus and other different kinds of association amongst sadhus or in general? So obviously there are different kinds of association. We could associate with those who aren't sadhus and that might not be, that wouldn't be as, that might not be as fruitful. In some stage it might be, but how essential, let's say, is, is, is association with saintly people? I'll tell you this. In my life, there is no one thing that has been more essential to my spiritual growth than association with uh, saintly persons, devotees who are more advanced than myself, my gurus. There is no one thing I could say that was more important, that caused my progress that fostered my progress than that. No one thing. So it is the most essential thing. Now, there are different kinds of, let's say, devotees of Krishna. All of them should be respected, but not all of them should be associated with. <laughs> that's another thing. <laughs> Some of them would give Krishna a bad name. That's also true. They have a good ideal, but they don't always live up to it. So that kind of association it should be like at a distance. We're not able to take advantage of them because they're not, they're not good association. So we ha have to exercise some discrimination in terms of association. There will be devotees, for example, who are less advanced spiritually than ourselves. There may be peers and there may be those who are more advanced than myself. So therefore I shall have different types of association amongst devotees. With those who are less advanced, how will I associate with them? I will share with what I have with them. That's how I associate with them, in a meaningful way. I will share what I have. With those who are my peers, then we will have camaraderie and, and we will share our trials and tribulations, <laughs> our struggles along the path, and get strength from one another. And with those who are more advanced, then how will I associate with them? I associate with them in such a way that they may be inclined to reveal their heart to me. What are their secrets? What they really have. So with some regard, and that will come naturally. You know, it's said you must have a guru, but it means I must have a guru. It means not like a law, but I feel it. I must have this company. I must get some guidance. Some people ask me, what is the qualification for being a student? I said, there's no qualification. For being a student. If there was a qualification, I mean, we're never qualified. It's such a great thing. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing you can do to make you, you know, qualified on yourself. It's the whole thing. Is, it's coming down to us from above. It's what makes you qualified. The, the, the sense to like, 
count your lucky stars, such an opportunity is available to me. So I always take it, even though I'm not, I don't think I'm qualified. The more you think, well, I'll qualify myself. <laughs> the less qualified you become, in a sense. It's a funny, funny thing, the way it works. But. So, anyway, association, very important. And um, then again, to go further with that, as one advances, what it means to associate may be different as well. For example, one may be advanced in spiritual life enough to take association of those who are advanced but not amongst us in ways that others cannot. I'll give you kind of a simple example of that. Some people may be able to read a sacred book and really understand what's there and demonstrate that by reiterating and explaining it in entirely different language and with different, entirely different examples and so forth. Some other people can read the book and if you understand it, you realize he doesn't understand the book. He's reading it. He's associating with the with the words of a sadhu who's written that down, but they can't take advantage of it. And it's coming out kind of mixed up, and he didn't quite get it. And so some people can associate, for example, through reading, with the authors of the books. They can feel their heart and understand where they're going, why they're going there, where they were before that, what subtly they're referring to, what they're saying something, and they know they're referring to another book over here somewhere. Some people can... Draw that out. They can know the heart of the author and associate. And other people may not be able to. Those people should study the book under the guidance of a person who can do that. So it will be different for different people. But the principle is the same for everyone. What is your capacity to get association? After all, one of my gurus, Pujapad Sridharmarsh, once he was sitting on the veranda. You know, he was like 90% blind and practically immobile and... Uh, quite old, and we were assembled, he was speaking kindly to us, and then afterwards, over one of the fellows there, he kind of struggled through the crowd to get up and touch the foot, the lotus foot of Sri Guru. He made a big commotion. Sri Marshal laughed. He said, that's what you think it means to touch the feet of the Guru. <laughs> it's a physical thing, and to make a disturbance in the course of doing it as well. It's not like that. It's a to associate means through consciousness to associate. Like my other guru, Prabhupada, used to say, I'm sitting here on this dais and, and, and there's a fly on my lap. He's very close to me. Hopefully we're lifetimes apart in terms of consciousnesses, which is where we really are, right? We're all in the same room, I think. Ask everybody. You might think we were all in a different room. We heard things differently. We saw things differently, right? So... It's a question of consciousness. So the more that you can grow in spiritual consciousness, the more you can thereby be associated with people who are in spiritual consciousness. And so there may be a way for some people to take advantage invisibly of those who have passed on, but others trying to do that will make, it, will make a mockery of such and distort the teaching. Sridhar Marsh once he told me, he said, he said, now that your guru has left, he said, so you have three choices. One choice is that you must become a guru. He said, and that's not so easy. There you have to be able to contact your guru in the heart. He said, second choice is you follow someone who can do that. Third choice is get out of the way. At least let the whole thing go on. Something like that. Then after a while he encouraged me, you do the first thing. So I'm making my small effort to represent him. Pro
So different, for different people it will mean different things, slightly. But the principle is the same for everyone. It's just like spiritual life, we're going to grow gradually. So cooking is also gradual, right? You say, when's the dinner? It's coming, it's coming. It's a few minutes, it's cooking. You say, okay, I come in the room and you say, I say, well, well when, when is it going to be? You know, approximately. Well, it's, it's coming. And then there's nothing on the stove. <laughs> you know, so, well, wait, you know, it's got to be on the fire, then it's going to cook gradually. So, good association means life to be close to the fire. Then you're going to cook gradually. If you have good association, you're going to be pushed subtly just by the faith and enthusiasm and experience of the person who's affording association to grow. Without that, then it's easy to kind of go off course and get distracted. So association is like that. It's like fire. And with regard to fire, then we have to be around fire. But we have to find how close we can be. Some people can take the heat, you know. Some people need a little bit of room. So Guru's like the fire. You have to figure out, and he has to help you figure out also how close you can be so that you can grow. And where will be the right place for you? Where, it's, where you just get enough. Where you don't get singed, but you get... Where you get, you know, just like they say, to give, you've got to feel the pinching. So, so feel some pinching. Enough that to, well, it pinches a little bit, but it feels good. Something like that. So that's, a, that's an art. You know? And we, you know, we live in a credit card society, so we want everything all at once, and even though we don't have the money for it, so we just run in there and... Really, sometimes it's the guru's business to say, step back, <laughs> go a little slower. It's the big thing here. Get a little bit of room, and then you can get a running start, because this is a big, big jump. And sometimes he may say, you come forward. Well, somebody may hold himself back out of humility. Then he or she say, you come right here. He said, right in the front. Hmm. So that's an art, anyway. Association. Okay, so... I really appreciate all you coming, and some of you I know came last night too, so you're on overtime now. <laughs> so that's extra extra points for that, I guess. <laughs> no, it's really nice. It gives me a good opportunity to say things that some, some of the things that I said today I never said before, I never thought about before. So it works like that. So I, you're much part of the equation, and I thank you very much.